Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening, and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow, and with me tonight, we have a special guest, and I'll be interviewing Michael Rank from the History in Five Minutes podcast, and we'll be talking about alchemy in the Ottoman Empire. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me. I I know that um, the Ottoman Empire is kind of a gap in in our show so far. We've talked about alchemists from the Middle East, but not so much in the Ottoman Empire. So first of all, so who were the Ottomans? I mean, what what time period are we talking about now? Yeah, great question. Uh, so really, in a nutshell, the Ottoman Empire was the dominant Muslim world power probably from the 16th and 19th century. They started in Anatolia, which is in modern-day Turkey, in the 14th century, the early 1300s, conquered Constantinople in 1453, and mm-hmm. the Turks still own it. It's now Istanbul. That's where I live, and I'm doing my research. Uh, They conquered the Arabian Peninsula in the 16th century, and this is where a lot of the intellectual traditions of the Middle East are absorbed into the Ottoman Empire, and this is where a lot of its science and alchemy uh, really takes shape. So they kind of carried the torch in some ways from the Middle East to to Istanbul. Exactly. They carry the torch, and they also modify it, but the Ottoman Empire – Something that people forget is it wasn't just a Middle Eastern empire, but most of its land holdings and its population was in the Balkans, in Southern Europe. Uh, It actually controlled Hungary for about 150 years. So there's Mm -hmm. a lot of uh, interaction with the West. And this uh, interaction affects its scientific development and also its alchemical development. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so are there some big differences in in kind of how alchemy developed in the Ottoman Empire versus, let's say, the Middle East? There is. Well, the origin is similar, but then it goes on its own way. Um, actually, the origin is the same place as where it starts in Europe, um, and that's in Hellenistic Egypt. So mm-hmm. it comes out of Ptolemaic Alexandria and this idea of adding some science and um, metaphysical study to metallurgy and how that whole thing develops, where it really takes form in the Islamic context, which um, you've probably talked about this before, so I'll just touch on it briefly to connect to the Ottoman heritage, is um, the Jabirian tradition, named after Jabir ibn Hayyan, um, mm-hmm. known in, the, in Europe as Geber, who yep. um, was active in the ninth century, uh, 8th and ninth century, He was a polymath. He was a chemist, alchemist, astronomer, astrologer, engineer, geographer, pharmacist, physicist, physician, anything you can think of. Um, So there are thousands of treatises that he wrote, um, a lot of things credited to him. We don't completely know what he wrote and what he didn't know because there are some apocryphal works that he did as well. And um, what he investigates and what's interesting, um, and this really affects the Ottoman tradition, is – uh, alchemy, um, in the Islamic context, it wasn't just the science of trying to transmute base metals into gold. It's the idea of transmutation is much broader than that. Um, in Arabic, mm-hmm. it's known as ilim il kimya, 
And mm-hmm. um, there were other applications too that had an application in medicine where as we try to change metals into perfect ones, we also try to cure a person of diseases. And yep. among physicians in the Ottoman Empire, um, alchemy was – they were probably the most active um, scholars in the field because they were trying to examine how – they could do new things with medicine, how they could treat people with diseases that they really didn't know how to treat, which in the 16th, 17th century is basically everything. And then the idea with alchemy was also how to create artificial life. Uh, and the fourth yep. one, um, which plays very heavily into uh, Islamic theology, particularly Sufi mystical thought, is the metaphorical transmutation of the soul. Uh, from an imperfect man to a perfect man. So mm-hmm. much like in the West, alchemy, it's this intersection between understanding the natural world and natural philosophy and understanding the metaphysical and spiritual world through theology. It's a meeting point between these two things. Uh, just as it is in the West, it also is in the East. So this is the Islamic background from where Ottoman alchemy comes from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, there's definitely some parallels in the in Western alchemy, but um, in general, in the East, people had a different spin on it. I think in one way, it was just it was just studied more publicly, so it was just kind of taken more seriously in, in several ways. But it's interesting because the Ottoman Empire, their um, experiments in alchemy kind of coincide with the the I call it the golden age of alchemy in the West where right. you have all these you know up to Holy Roman Empire emperor having court alchemists and all that so yeah that's kind of an interesting time frame in general for alchemy did you come across any specific alchemists that are kind of interesting in the Ottoman Empire oh yeah absolutely well uh probably the the main person that I think helps form it is uh, in the 16th century when the Ottoman Empire really starts to attain its um, economic and political height. In 1526, they were uh, famously at the gates of Vienna. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of Europeans were worried that um, the empire would completely overrun Europe. Uh, and Martin Luther is writing during the Reformation that the Turk is the tool of the rod of Satan to punish us for our sins. <laughs> um, yeah. So really much, an, very much an existential threat. But also at this time, with its political power, there's economic power and it can fund academic institutions. There's a proliferation of writing, of building schools, uh, madrasas, the Islamic institutes. And out of this, there comes a figure, um, Ali Chalebi Izniki, who in the mid-16th century takes Jabiri's scholarship, but then he builds upon it. So okay. what he's doing, uh, that's he does a couple of interesting things. One is that with alchemy, the way that Al-Jabiri or Geber uh, wrote about it is he thought of it as um, a link between this world and the, the celestial world, the microcosmos and the macrocosmos. Yeah. Um, but something um, Ali Chalebi does is he switches it a little bit and he makes alchemy the microcosmos, part of this world. And it's man who's a conduit between the cosmos and this world. So, yeah, yeah, so here, like, man is the connection between the two. Um, And you can see here, he's also really interested in astronomy and astrology and how this influences alchemical procedures. The Ottomans, well, I mean, like any early modern period, they love astronomy, but and astrology, but Mm -hmm. it's it takes on a a massive form. It even plays into a lot of their uh, political writings. There's this idea that 
a world conqueror who um, is anointed by God to rule the world. Basically, it only he only comes along very few times in history, like Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, uh, Tom Erlane. And mm-hmm. if there's a certain conjunction, particularly between Jupiter and Saturn, things happen where somebody rises up and he's kind of anointed to take on power and dominate the world like these earlier figures. And also in the 16th century, this is a time where both in Europe and the Middle East, there were a lot of ideas of the apocalypse um, with um, somebody is going to conquer the other side and really take power. So anyway, all that to say that like astronomy and astro- astrology figure in a lot to these thoughts. And this mm-hmm. uh, comes into the Ottoman uh, alchemical tradition as well. Um, yep. So all that, so he's one figure, but it, al- alchemy isn't completely widespread. I mean, like in Europe, it's kind of an occultist practice. It's it's sort of kept hidden because there's an idea that the knowledge should be contained. It could be used for good and for evil. Yeah. You, you, you can't just go to the market and buy a book and start fiddling around with chemicals, but. Uh, you really need to be taken under the wing of an instructor who will lead you and guide you. Because it's not just um, tinkering with chemicals, but it's also a spiritual transformation too. Mm-hmm. So so it is kind of a secret occultist uh, type of thing. Um, but I will say that there's funny uh, examples of swindlers trying to go around and um, sell people uh, this. Uh, one thing that I can think of is um, there's uh, documentation – I want to mention here uh, just that I got this information from uh, Professor Tuna Artun, professor at Rutgers University. He's written a lot on Islamic scientific heritage, and he actually appeared recently on the Ottoman History Podcast, which is another good one that I recommend, although it's kind of academic. So if you don't get fired up with words like secondary literature or historiography, then uh, Uh your eyes might glaze over. But anyway, uh, he relates a story that... In the 16th century, there was a swindler who came from North Africa into uh, Anatolia. And North Africa was sort of esteemed as this place of science and alchemical traditions. It's where a lot of prominent uh, medieval Muslim thinkers hailed from. Mm -hmm. And he wandered into Anatolian provinces and collected money from locals, uh, promising to teach them alchemy. So he would collect a bunch of money from them. They would come together, wait for him to... to show them how to take their base metals and tools and transmute them into gold. And then he flees the provinces with their money in tow. He actually actually did this multiple times until he was finally arrested. And this document that uh, references him also said he escaped. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. One thing that's kind of interesting to me is is that in the golden age of, of alchemy in the West, and this is kind of the same time, time frame, you have a wide variety of rulers or let's say nobility that would either outline alchemy outright or outlaw it in public, but then secretly hire court alchemists. And then you'd have people like like Rudolf II, that would just invite all the alchemists into into town and you know support them and give them money to to kind of do these experiments. So what what did that look like in the Ottoman Empire? You mentioned that it was kind of an occult uh, or seen as kind of an occult um, field, but were, did did rulers still support this? Was there was there like official alchemists still working for the courts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, what ruler could pass up the opportunity to potentially have unlimited access to gold? If this is what you need to raise up armies, attack your enemies, build buildings, then uh, yeah, of course. And a great example we see is Sultan Murad IV of the 17th century. 
he was mm-hmm. highly interested in alchemy, and he actually sponsored alchemists uh, to experiment and see if they could create sums of gold. And an interesting side effect of this, even though he raised this money to uh, put down rebellions or even attack enemies in the West, he actually created um, closer scientific ties with the West uh, through this process. Okay. Because at this time, um, one figure who I I think represents a good link between the Ottoman and European alchemical traditions uh, and kind of a scientific bridge is Paracelsus, uh, the famed mm-hmm. uh, philosopher, astrologer, alchemist, and occultist. As these court-sponsored Ottoman um, intellectuals are looking into the alchemical tradition, of course, they come across him. And many of these people that are funded by Murad IV are actually court physicians, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, Paracelsus would be of high interest to them because he introduced a lot of alchemical precepts into medicine, mm-hmm. like using yep. mercury in treatment. So he was uh, translated into Arabic in the mid-17th century by the physician of Sultan Mehmet IV, a later sultan. And so after this translation comes out, Ottoman scholars are um, translating more of Paracelsus's work. They're using his precepts in medicine, and this develops uh, some primitive pharmacology, in the mm-hmm. Ottoman Empire. But what happens is it's not as if the European tradition is adopted wholesale into the Ottoman Empire. What it does is it causes them to look at Paracelsus, but through the lens of the Islamic tradition. So they're making use of him, but by way of Jabiri. So it's not like mm-hmm. when Isaac Newton okay. is writing, they're, they're just taking what he does, but they're they're looking at the West, but still trying to figure out how to apply it to their own context. Yeah, that's interesting because for me, I always see the knowledge transfer going kind of from East to West. So something like an old Greek text would be translated from Arabic to Latin, or or even Al-Jabir would be translated from Arabic to Latin and then kind of spread in the West through a lens. You know, it gets filtered, but I never really gave it much thought that it happens the other way too, especially, which makes sense for the Ottoman Empire. So it's, that's pretty interesting, actually. It, it, that's a good, I mean, that's a good point too, that um, the the channels on where knowledge spread at this time are much more mixed and interwoven than we really even understand now. And historians have been examining these links a lot more in the last few decades. Um, a big one is that, I mean, in the Middle Ages, obviously, um, everyone's interested in Aristotle, um, Muslims, mm-hmm. Christians, Jews. Thomas Aquinas mm-hmm. quotes a lot from Ibn Sina or Avicenna, as he's yep. known in the West, and yep. Averroes. But this is something that's only beginning to be explored, the scientific heritage in the Ottoman Empire. And alchemy, I think, is uh, it's very interesting because like much in the way that people are realizing it wasn't just this crackpot thing that Europe had to get over to really get into the Enlightenment, but it was actually something that really helped jumpstart the Enlightenment uh, as a forerunner of empirical analysis and Mm note-taking and experimentation. But the same way in the Ottoman Empire, it wasn't like it's this um, sort of superstitious disease that needs to be taken care of and we need to amputate this limb for the body to heal. It was seen as an intersection between a rational study of the material world and the immaterial world into one. So, but the que- but here's a big question of what was alchemy in the Ottoman world? In 
European history, it's seen as the forerunner of the Enlightenment, and some people even call it proto-chemistry, which is, I think, kind of uh, putting a, like a teleology where it might not need to be. Yeah. Um, and not just like looking at it on its own terms. Um, well, that's kind of hard to say because there's not really a scientific revolution in the Ottoman Empire that mirrors the European experience because there, there are these old traditions that stay in the Ottoman Empire and the fully formed um, scientific method that takes bloom in Europe in the 19th century is basically exported or imported wholesale um, into the Ottoman Empire in the late 19th century. So um, mm -hmm. the role it plays in the development of science is – it's different in the Ottoman world than it is in Europe. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah. I mean that's, that's kind of almost the premise of the show is to kind of show that – you know, there, there, there's, well, I mean, there's no such thing as the dark ages. There's, there's kind of a continuation of a tradition of, um, depends on how you define science, but, but it was science. They made some scientific breakthroughs here and there. And, and, you know, a lot of the lab equipment and that kind of thing goes back to alchemists. So yeah, it, it is, it is interesting to see, um, if you step back a little bit and see kind of where some of the things we did now came from, uh, but on the other hand, yeah, alchemy was clearly mixed up in, in a cult and had some some strange ideas here and there. So it is kind of an interesting crossroads. So it's nice to get a perspective from a different part of the world or one, one that we haven't really talked about here on the show. One thing I wanted to address is a question of did alchemy hold back the Ottoman Empire? There wasn't a similar scientific revolution there. There was mm -hmm. one in the West. So why Europe and why not the Ottoman Empire? Well, that's a massive question, and that's something that people ask not just in the Middle East, but why not China? Why not um, all these other places in the world, and why Europe? Well, I don't want to get into that um, and look at alchemy in that negative way, but maybe instead ask the question differently and think, uh, what were the positive aspects uh, that it had on society? And I would argue that the net of effect was far more positive than it was negative. Um, I think much as you've talked about too, we can see it as a crucial, as crucial for understanding the social and cultural context of society as this element of understanding the empirical world grows uh, as the Ottoman empire grows in geography grows in power. Um, and it's ed educational status also grows. There's more interest by natural philosophers and other people to look at their own heritage, but also incorporate elements from other parts of the world into their understanding. So alchemy is the way that uh, texts from Europe enter, and it's the way that pharmacology develops. It's the way that mm -hmm. understanding of science develops. It's the way that uh, these physicians are taking a new look at their own tradition. And I mean, isn't this what we always credit with the Renaissance, that it was Europeans rediscovering the classical heritage, but reapplying it to their own context. And in a small way, this is what alchemy does in the Ottoman Empire. So I, th I really think we have to give it credit for... Um, That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I mean, playing an important role at a critical time in history. Mm -hmm. In a way, it's kind of like I've said before that, you know, uh, if, if you look at philosophy, everything is considered philosophy until one region kind of grows enough and then you can spin it out into its own into its own thing. So like psychology at one point was just philosophy. In fact, all of science was at one point philosophy. Right. And alchemy has that kind of, that same sort of thing to it where people might be talking about theology or especially medicine. And uh, then eventually what kind of 
became chemistry, although I also wouldn't call alchemy a, a proto-chemistry. Um, and, you know, as these branches kind of developed, they began to separate and, you know, definitely grow. So, that it, yeah, it is kind of a, an interesting point that, yeah, if you go far enough back, there, there was this kind of interwoven network between, between the different fields of study. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on the show. And again, that was Michael Rank. And if you'd like to hear more, please visit the History in 5 Minutes podcast. And you can find that on michaelrank.net. Michael also had recently had an ebook out, and you can find that on Amazon. It's called Lost Civilizations, Tense Societies That Vanished Without a Trace, which sounds, sounds pretty interesting. And also, we're both members of the History Podcasters Network, and we both collaborate on projects there. So you can, you can see more there on thehistorypodcasters.net. All right, so thank you very much for coming. Thank you for having me. And to my listeners, thank you very much for listening. Have a good night. You've been listening to the History of Alchemy podcast with Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. For more information about this episode, other episodes, and other information about alchemy, alchemists, and related subjects, visit historyofalchemy.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, and don't forget to rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page or Twitter at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast all about the Czech Republic, Bohemican, which is also available on iTunes or on bohemican.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy podcast, thank you for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 